Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Romans? Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Now, uh, our, our Bible is made up of 66 different books on, uh, on the inside of our Bible. So, our Bible is a bit of a library, and the book of Romans is one of those books. It's found in uh, two broad sections. We have a First and Second Testament, an Old and New, so it's in that latter one in the New. And it's in the section in the New that is known as the, uh, the Epistles section. An epistle is just a fancy way of saying a letter. Romans is a book, but more technically it's a letter that was written by the historic Apostle Paul uh, to believers who were in Rome. The Apostle Paul has various missionary journeys, three broad ones that you can read about in the book of Acts and you can study in church history. So on his third missionary journey, he's probably writing from the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, he's, he has correspondence with the church in Rome and they have different issues that are going on there. Uh, there's, uh, there's issues of uh, politics, there's issues of ethnic strife, there's uh, issues of, of doctrine and faith. and So they're real people in real life trying to live real faith, and, and they're trying to figure some things out. And, and so Paul writes to them to address some of these questions, to give them instruction, to encourage them, to comfort them, and also to challenge them. He has to call them out on, on some of their junk, and and so he's going to name some names, and he's got some hard words, but it's, uh, it's sprinkled with a lot of kindness, as uh, you would be familiar with when you read Paul's writings. He can, he can be firm, but at the same time, you walk away feeling like, this guy loves me. And as you read the book of Romans, you can feel his love for the people. So third missionary journey, circa 57, he's writing in the first century to the believers in Rome. Let's pause there. We're going to come to, to, to Romans in just a second. But by way of review and introduction this morning, I, I want to remind you of what we've been doing in the past month. We've had an Advent sermon series. Every year at the end of the year, we, we focus on the celebration of Christmas. And so a part of that is that we preach on something related to Christmas. And so for our Christmas sermon series in 2022... Uh, I was offering a, a series that's unpacking the doctrine of the virgin conception of the Christ child. As a play on the doctrine of the virgin conception, I entitled the sermon series Conceiving, Conception, Conceiving Christmas, or Conceiving the Christ Child. And through this series, we've been looking at why the virgin conception is a big deal to us, and, and, and what the Bible has to say about this concept of the virgin conception. In today's message, I want to offer the final installment of this series, and it actually fits well with the first Sunday of the new year because the, the theme that we're going to see this morning is a, is a hope for things new. Uh, the title of my message this morning, you'll see on the outline, is Paradise Staged, Starting Restoration. I'll share more about the aim of today's message, but before I do, I want to remind us of what ground we have covered. So let's do a little bit of Christmas review. In part one of this sermon series, which was entitled Promised Seed, the Story of Redemption, we looked at why the virgin conception is important in terms of the biblical storyline of redemption. Uh, the Bible, 66 books together, are, is telling one story, and it's a story of redemption. And, and if you don't know the storyline of it, you're not going to see how the virgin conception fits in. And so in this first installment, we looked at the story of the Bible, the story of redemption. The story begins with the beginning. It begins with God, and it begins with creation. It begins with a God creating the world in His love. And it begins with a, a God whose love is unrequited. He's rejected. And the humans that He made in His own image rebel against Him. 
But God, being gracious and merciful, has, has a plan even before the beginning that He's going to carry out a plan of redemption. And so we saw in the very opening chapters with creation and the fall, on the heels of, of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we saw this promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15. He, he, he says that He's going to send a seed that is going to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. This seed is going to come through the woman, and the seed is going to deliver a fatal blow, the bruise to the head. This seed himself will, will, will suffer. He will be bruised on the heel. And so we have this prophecy of a seed who's going to come and overthrow the darkness and, and, and incur an injury along the way, but ultimately be victorious. All of this is highly relevant to Christmas because in, in Christmas, the, the Christ child becomes the literal seed of this promise. In fact, we, we saw, and I shared with you uh, throughout the series, that scholars refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-euangelion. Ooh is a word that means good, angelion, angelos means message, the good message, the, the first good news, proto, the first. This is the first mention of the good news of Jesus the Christ. Now, the story of Christmas, then, doesn't begin in the manger with Mary. Oh, no, it begins with another woman. It begins with Eve. It doesn't begin with Joseph and appearance of an angel. It begins with another man, Adam, our father, and Eve, our, our mother. And so we move from Adam and Eve in the story of redemption uh, to the patriarchs. We, we, we think of the father Abraham, who becomes uh, the father of the nation, the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And God passes the promise of the seed to Abraham and to Abraham's uh, children, Isaac and Jacob, and to the nation. And this promised seed, then, is heralded from Genesis through the history of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the establishment of the people of Israel. This promised seed, then, keeps getting heralded through the Jewish prophets as you're reading the Hebrew Bible. The promise is heralded by the prophets. The promise is documented in history. God is rescuing and reconciling a people for Himself. Humanity rejected His love, but God in grace is saving a people for Himself to know His love. People love a good love story. People love stories of redemption. We love seeing, you know, the weak uh, win. We love seeing the outcast brought in. We love seeing the rejected receive love. We, we love stories in general. So a part of this sermon series has really been emphasizing the importance of, of story anthropologically for us as humans. Humans are, are storytellers. Think of our stories. This past weekend, theaters were filled with people flocking to hear stories. A Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, is blowing up. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, is still blowing up. The biggest movie, I, I looked it up because I was curious, that, uh, that is out right now, is uh, the new Avatar movie, Way of Water. It has grossed over $261 million. That is a lot of money. And I have no idea what it's, what it's about because I didn't, I didn't see it and I didn't see the first one. I was never interested in it. So sorry, Avatar fans. It, it looked weird to me. It, was, it looked like Pocahontas with Smurfs. I was like, well, I don't get this. But apparently people really like it. Our, our culture is filled with stories. We love stories. And so, so it's important then for us to understand the story of the Bible because it connects with our culture's stories. Indeed, there, there's something woven into it that just comes out, I believe, at being image bearers of God. We, we tell stories that very much resemble the storyline of the Bible. Well, in the storyline of the Bible, you have this seed promise that's going to offer redemption for fallen humanity that's rejected the love of God and broken the law of God. 
And here comes the, the seed of promise, who, who is bruised, the Messiah. And the Hebrew prophets talk about him. So like Micah 5.2, Micah the prophet prophesied that the, the Messiah, the promised seed, would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. The prophet Moses said that the Messiah would be of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The psalmist and the prophet Jeremiah foretold that the Messiah would be in the line of David. The prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 7.14 that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Look at this verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin with a child will bear a son. And we call his name Emmanuel. When the ancient uh, Jewish people translated this uh, text from the Hebrew into the Greek, they used the Greek word parthenos for virgin. Parthenos means virgin. In fact, in science today, we have the phrase parthenogenesis, which is the technical term for asexual reproduction. That's right, in biology, there are certain uh, living creatures that asexually reproduce, and that's referred to as parthenogenesis, parthenos, a virgin. Now, of course, uh, among humans, we haven't seen this sort of phenomenon. It's certainly not regularly occurring. Suffice it to say, biologically, it does, it does happen among creatures. And in this instance, we, we had a bona fide miracle. A woman who gives birth to a child and has never engaged in, uh, in a sex act. It's an asexual, miraculous reproduction in fulfillment of what the prophet said. So this prophecy is fulfilled in the Christ child. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we read of the angel who answered to her, Mary, and said, The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Now, he, he needs to be born holy. He needs to be born holy. Because, because humanity is not holy. We need a, a sacrifice that is holy. And so that's a part of the virgin conception, which led to our second installment in the sermon series of propitiation set up, the sacrifice revealed. The virgin conception is vital because it provides for us the innocent sacrifice for the sins of God's people. By the Spirit, a sexual reproduction, a miracle, the child is born holy. Being born of a virgin means that the child is born free from the stain of sin. Sin, like our genes, is, is passed on. I have, I have the fortunate experience of uh, the gene of male pattern baldness, and it's passed on. And you look, uh, you, know, you look at the family and you can see it. And then there's my brother who has a full set of hair. Alas, one of us might be adopted. I don't know, but your genes get passed on. And so too spiritually, we have a sin gene that we pass on. Our sin is, is spiritually a matter of hereditary. This is bypassed, however, in the virgin conception where the child is born of free from that passing on uh, through, through a man and a woman. So then Joseph is not Jesus' dad. He's his stepdaddy. I saw this meme of Maury Povich. Uh, you, you know Maury Povich. Uh, he's the tabloid talk show host. He was known for his CD episodes, uh, daytime, showcasing sort of the worst of humanity, sexual infidelity, out-of-control teenagers, sperm theft, obese kids, domestic violence, bullying, mental illness. And of course, there's the infamous paternity tests where... Uh, where, shamefully, people want to figure out who's mom and who's dad just publicly in front of all of the world to watch. And, 
And then Amori opens the envelope after exploiting the drama of the couple and says, you know, he's not the real father, and, you know, everyone freaks out. And so sometimes they celebrate. Anyway, someone had one of Mori Povich uh, in the manger, and he says, according to our test results, Joseph, you're not the father. Uh, Mori Christmas. I thought that was creative. And in fact, it's biblically accurate. Uh, he is not the father. This, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. This is parthenogenesis. Uh, sidebar here, I, I looked it up because I was really curious about this. Maury Povich has run for 31 seasons, which means Maury is the longest-running daytime talk show with a single host in American history. Now, if that's not evidence for the fall of humanity, I don't know what else is. You say, we're sinners. Who, who are you to judge me? I'm like, D have you seen Maury Povich? I mean, this is, this is what we watch. This is... This is what we're into, right? These are the stories we tell. Anyway, moving on in part three, we, t we talked about the personal showing that comes through the virgin conception, the self-revelation of God in the Christ child. The virgin conception is critical because it uniquely brings by the Spirit the incarnation of God the Son who reveals God the Father to humanity in the flesh. Uh, we believe that there's one God who eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In, in, in the manger in Bethlehem is not the Father or the Spirit, but is the Son by the Spirit sent of the Father. It is the person of the Son who has taken on humanity. And this is uh, a, an important thing, as we saw in this, uh, in this installment, because the Son makes us sons. The Son offers, offers that unique eternal relationship that He has with His Father, and by the Spirit we are then adopted into the family of God. Being made a part of the family of God is, is key in the incarnation of the Son through the virgin conception. This is a critical thing for us to see as well because the Son has come to reveal the Father. So in this study we saw a lot of passages where the, where the Son is like, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I've come to reveal my Father to you. Like a son who loves his father, he wants his followers to know his Father and he wants them to be reconciled with the Father. Very, very powerful to see the Son revealing the Father to His people. Uh, inviting the people to pray to His Father as their Father, our Father who art in heaven. I'm sharing my Father with you. And if you grew up in a broken home where maybe a dad wasn't present and, and you had a friend who invited you into to his or her home and shared their dad with you, you know how powerful that is to have someone share their father with you. Behold the eternal son who has become a man and in the incarnation is revealing face to face his father and sharing him with us. Now in terms of the storyline of redemption, here you have uh, in, in this personal showing, God is personally showing himself, you really have the ultimate cameo in terms of storytelling, right? You know what a cameo is when someone important sort of appears in the story and you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the ancient prophets didn't see this coming quite either. They had pieces of it by way of progressive revelation, but, but the Messiah who is to come, the seed promise who is to come, is actually God in the flesh. That, that's the ultimate cameo. We all love a good cameo. Iron Man 2... Uh, in Iron Man 2, I don't know if you caught it, he, uh, tech billionaire Elon Musk appears in Iron Man 2. You can see him having a conversation with Tony Stark during a party where he even tries to pitch him an idea for a new electronic jet. And it, it turns out actually some parts of the movie were filmed at the SpaceX facilities. 
Now, this was before everyone you know, decided to cancel or draw sides on Elon Musk, Twitter, and all that stuff. So at that point, everyone was like, oh, dang, that was Elon Musk. He was in Iron Man. That's crazy. Speaking of billionaires and cameos, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos made a cameo on the Star Trek movie. Uh, I'm not a Trekkie, but I looked it up because I was looking for sermon illustrations. But, you know, maybe you Trekkies, you're like, yeah, that, I saw that. That was cool. If you're not looking for a cameo, though, you miss it. That, that's what makes cameos kind of fun. If you're not watching or you don't know who these characters are, you're going to miss it. That happens with our eyes, and it also happens with our ears. While looking up cameos, I also found examples of, uh, of, of missing something by way of hearing. Apparently, the Jonas Brothers had an audio cameo on Night at the Museum, Battle of the Smithsonian. They didn't appear on screen, but their voices did in a scene with these little three-stone angelic cherubs. And the identity behind the voices becomes particularly clear for Jonas fanboys when the cherubs break into, uh, I guess, one of their songs known as Love Bug. Anyway, that was news to me. I had no idea. Uh, like these Pocahontas Smurfs movies, I, I don't know any of it, but I looked it up, and I thought that was a cameo I missed. And that's the thing about cameos. If you don't know, you miss it. You have to have ears to hear. You have to know what the Jonas Brothers sound like to catch them. You have to know what Bezos looks like to catch him, or Elon Musk to catch him. You, you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, sadly, in our sin, in terms of the biblical storyline, we don't have eyes to see. We don't have ears to hear. So when the cameo of the eternal Son of God comes to Bethlehem, people miss him. They don't see him. They don't see him. They miss him. And that's the sad part in the Christmas story. It's the sad part of the entire story because, again, the story of redemption involves a story of unrequited love. And if you've lived long enough in this life, you have no doubt had your heart trampled on. Uh, maybe by, by, uh, by someone that you cared for or you were in love with who rejected you. Some parents have that as well from, from children that have rejected you. Uh, prodigal children that go away, prodigal family members that go away, you pour your heart out and you get nothing. You know what that pain is like. It's a, it's a painful story, but it's a love story of him redeeming a people in spite of them having eyes to see and ears to hear. None of us would have seen this coming. None of us would have heard this. It is but by grace that we see and we hear. Uh, thinking of cameos that we miss in terms of our culture, there's this TV show, Parks and Recreation, and Parks of Recre Recreation has had a number of political cameos. They, they had one with Joe Biden on there on a particular episode. This was uh, before, uh, before, you know, we'll leave it there. Uh, they had an episode with John McCain. Back in the day, John McCain made a cameo appearance on the show Parks and Recs. And in the scene, it's really interesting because, you know, John McCain appears, war vet, you know, kind of big guy, and he tries to catch the attention of the main character in the show, uh, played by Amy Poehler, and unfortunately for him, she's so preoccupied with something else, she doesn't even notice him. And that was, it's a comedy show, so it was meant to be funny, but it made me think about the first Christmas. We can be so preoccupied that when someone of importance enters into the room, we, we miss him. We entirely miss him. And that's the story of Christmas. The people who saw him were by grace drawn in. Shepherds who were outcasts in that culture. Foreign, foreign rulers, the Magi, or Magi as some pronounce it. Uh, you know, the foreigners, outsiders, outcasts are being drawn in to see him. But those who are right there, they don't see. 
Now, earlier I quoted the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, and in that prophecy we, we read of the Parthenos, that he will be born of a virgin, and we also read in Isaiah 7.14 that he will be called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is self-revelation. God the Son in the flesh. God with us. Mind you, Jesus is not only God with us, but He is also, listen, God for us, which is the point of the fourth message, the priestly sharing, the sympathetic rector. He is our, he is our priest. He is our, our head. He, he is not only God with us, He is God for us. And the virgin conception is crucial in this regard because it gives us a sympathetic high priest who can relate to us in both humanity and also as God, for He is God and man, providing the ultimate mediator through the virgin conception. Jesus is God for us, the eternal God as our priest and mediator and sacrifice to make us right with God. Now let's come to the book of Romans. Would you find your way to the eighth chapter in the book of Romans? Recall this first century text, this first century letter that was, uh, that was written to this congregation in Rome to explain things, to address things, to clarify, to comfort, to challenge. Thinking of Christ as our priest, thinking of Christ as our mediator, not just a priest, mind you, but also a sacrifice. Christmas is what prepares the sacrifice. Christmas gives the eternal Son flesh that can die so that He can be a sacrifice. Christmas gives us flesh that is holy so that he can die in our place. Christmas gives us the priest who will offer himself as a sacrifice, and in so doing, he will lift our condemnation. Romans chapter 8, draw your eyes at verse 1. What does it say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul juxtaposes the flesh and the Spirit. It's a part of a word play that he's using uh, to explain uh, to the congregation that had some tension around the law of Moses and ethnic identity for uh, Gentiles and Jewish people. Uh, Jewish people who had historically received the mark of circumcision in their flesh. And so Paul uses flesh as a pun to talk about this uh, ethnic divide that was going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. But here he, he wants them to see, because for chapters he's explained to both the Jews and the Gentiles, you're condemned in the eyes of God. The law of God, it, it hangs over your head and you're condemned by it. Now, now here's what happens though. That's bad news that you're condemned. But here's what happens, though. God has provided a sacrifice for you. And because of this sacrifice, there is therefore now no condemnation. Look at what God did in Christmas. Look at what He did. Look at what He sent. He sent the Son in the flesh for us. Okay, so, so, so this is the ground that we have covered. We have looked at the promised seed, the propitiation setup, the personal showing, and the priestly sharing. And now we're going to move into today's uh, message about paradise staged. And we're going to see how the virgin conception is preparing us for Christmas future. So a lot of what we've covered is Christmas past and what Christmas provided for us uh, in, in, in the storyline and fulfilling the storyline and, and giving us a holy sacrifice and giving us a sympathetic priest and, and, and giving us a personal revelation of the Father through the Son by the Spirit. A lot of this we, we, we've seen is past. 
What we are going to close the message with today is why the virgin conception is important for the future. Now, the idea of future brings in a theme that we see in the Bible, a theme of new creation that is woven through this storyline of redemption. Recall, the story begins with God creating, and creation gets messed up. A part of the promised seed entails not just creatures being reconciled with God, but the creation itself being reconciled. So we remind ourselves that in the storyline, creation was ruined in Genesis. You have Romans 8 in front of you. Would you draw your eyes at verse 18, please? Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into freedom for the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Uh, Romans is reminding us of what Genesis told us. Uh, the, the prophet Moses, the apostle Paul, they're, they're giving you the same history, the same theology. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, the earth was cursed. The ground is cursed. Paul is describing the earth's experience. He's personifying the earth. The earth is groaning. You hear the earth groan. You hear the earth sighing and suffering. Uh, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish environmental activist, has no idea of the danger that we are in. This is not, an, this is not a mere issue of, of, of global warming, whatever you think about that. Uh, this is not an issue of we've got to recycle more, we've got to whatever more. Yes, we do. Christians need to be involved in caring for the environment. That is a command that was given to us in the book of Genesis. But this problem is much deeper than merely recycling more. This problem is deeper than lowering our carbon footprints. Don't mishear me. Those are good things to do. And uh, wherever you stand on those complex issues, uh, don't drag them in here for Pete's sake. But the point is, we have a problem that is deeper than the environment and politics around the environment. We have a problem that is complicated by sin. Paul explains that in Romans. The creation is groaning. The creation is suffering. Well, well how did that come about? Well, move from Romans 1 back to uh, Romans 8 back to Romans chapter 1. Paul starts his letter explaining how that came about. Draw your eyes at verse 18 of, of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed, Romans 1.18, from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have clearly been seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and birds and footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored. They exchanged the truth of God, verse 25, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And Paul throws in an amen there. It's a hard word. It is a hard word. It's a hard reality. It's a sobering reality. This is where it all stems from. This is why the earth is a mess. It's not just the mess of, of humanity, but it's, it's the mess in the earth. 
We should expect ozone layers to be messed up and oceans to have oil and animals that go extinct and all the, you know, volcanoes exploding and destroying things. The earth itself isn't operating right. It's like our relationships, if we can get real, right? You know what it is when your relationships aren't working right and the dysfunction that happens there. It's not just relational dysfunction. It's biological dysfunction. The whole creation is growing, groaning. The whole creation is, has been ruined. And it, and it comes through humanity who was given dominion over the creation. So as a result of our, of our abdication of our responsibility in the eyes of God when we rejected His love and His law, we, we brought not only ruin to ourselves, but to the creation. And there's not a person who is exempt from this. Sin has infected everyone. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a person in this room who has not been infected, nor impacted by sin. Further, there is not a person in here who will get away with your sin. The prophet Moses wrote in Numbers 32.23, You sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide. You can't hide. You, you can't hide from this. It, it, will, it will be found out. Whether in, whether in this life, when eventually the, the lying and the covering gets exposed, but surely in the life that is to come when you stand in the eyes of God. You can't run. You can't hide. Now I have a Fuji song in my head. Anyway, uh, you can't run. You can't hide. He's going to find you. Uh, I recently read an, an article of a case involving a 97-year-old woman who worked at a secretary at a Nazi concentration camp and was convicted by a German court of being an accessory to murder of over 10,000 people. She actually tried to escape from her trial. She fled from her retirement home. She's in a retirement home, and she's scheduled for trial. She called a cab, jumped in the cab, and took off and disappeared. There was a warrant issued for her arrest, and she was apprehended by the police. Total gangster move. You're 97 years old running from the police. Your sin will find you out. The solution is not running. The solution is not hiding. The solution is coming clean. It's not running. It's repentance. And in repentance, there you have your life changed, which brings us to the third point. We've had our Christmas review. We understand creation is ruined. And we find hope in knowing that God converts rebels. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He uses a word there, strepfo, and strepfo means to turn, to be changed. When you grab something and you change its position, that's, that's strepho. When you take something that's being used in a particular way, when you take it and you put it to use in another way, that, that's strepho. You've changed it. Strepho also conveys the idea of disassociating a, a thing from something. You, you, you've been strephoed. You've been disassociated from the kingdom of darkness. You've been disassociated even further from, from your sin. He's taken you from that, strephoed you. He's converted you. Conversion is not something we do to ourselves. It is the gift of God that no man may boast. The Apostle Paul is no stranger to conversion. God grabbed a hold of his life and changed him. Look at how he begins the book of Romans. Look at how he starts. Paul, chapter 1, verse 1, a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart 
by the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you have also been called of Christ Jesus. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has this language of being set apart. That's, that's, that's strepho kind of stuff there, where you're being taken from here and you're being placed over here. It's an undeserved thing. It, it, it's a gift thing. Paul's, Paul's been saved and it, it's God's doing. Notice how Paul connects it in these seven verses we just read to the greater story. He ties it to Christmas. He ties it to, to the promise of the one who is to come. He, he talks about what was promised beforehand through the prophets. He's, he's tying this thing to the story. And now, by salvation, you're actually being brought into the story. It's not just something you're watching. You're, you're now in it. And Paul's been made an apostle in it. He's been given particular leadership, and he didn't have it coming if you know his background, he was a part of a militant terrorist cell that was persecuting Christians. Uh, he, he was much like the 97-year-old. Uh, he was in, in a cabbie on the run, and then uh, Jesus comes to him and smacks him down and forever changes his life. And, and if you are in Christ, your life is forever changed. 2 Corinthians, Paul would write in chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. What an excellent verse to read on the first day of a new year. And you think about stuff in last year that, uh, you know, and you think about having a new slate. You have a new slate, a new year, a new creation. Galatians 6.15, if you're note-taking, he uses the same language there, that you're a new creation. Paul was made new. The readers of Rome, they're made new. And it wasn't their doing, it was God's doing. Paul, in talking about his own apostleship, would write this in 1 Corinthians. Look at this. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more, all, all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. I didn't deserve this. Speaking of those who believe and, and, and hear the message preached, Paul locks conversion to the preaching of God's Word. Paul writes in Romans that the Gospel is the power unto salvation. The gift is unlocked by the Spirit through the preaching of His Word, which is why we place a premium on preaching in Christ's church, because conversion comes through the Gospel being preached. In the book of Romans, speaking of conversion... Uh, in, in the 16th chapter, you have this reference in front of you in Romans 16, verse 5. In Romans 16, 5, uh, the Apostle Paul has a, has, a, has a little line in there. To the first convert of Christ in Asia, the line goes. And he gives the name of the guy. Uh, it's Epinetos. Epinetos, the first convert. Paul is so excited about Epinetos. I'm excited about empanadas, but uh, epinetas is the first convert there. It, you know, that, that's, what, that's what the church longs for, to see rebels converted, to see lives changed. There, as he talks about epinetas, the, in the Greek, he literally calls them a first fruit. It's horticultural imagery for harvest. You've, you've planted the, the seed, and 
And, and, and it's God who waters and grows and, and does this. So we move from creation, ruin, converted rebels, to now Christ's resurrection. With Romans 1 in front of you, would you turn quickly to Romans chapter 6? We're surveying the theology of Romans this morning to drive home the importance of the virgin conception as it relates to Christmas future. Turn to Romans 6, let's reflect on Christ's resurrection and Christmas. Without Christmas, there would be no body to hang on the tree of the cross of Calvary. Without Christmas, no body, no sacrifice. Also, without a body, there would be nothing to resurrect. Understand that our faith is thoroughly centered on resurrection. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith would be worthless. No resurrection, the, the Christian faith is worth nothing, Paul writes. Why? Because we would all still be dead in our sins. The resurrection is the proof that the payment for our sin was made and that the payment was also effective. Both the act of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, Jesus secures for us. Romans chapter 6, draw your eyes at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin may be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See the language of old and new. The talk of life and death. See the union of the believer in Christ to Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. There is another union that we need to see as well. And it is our union not with Christ, but our union with Adam. Move from Romans chapter 6 to Romans chapter 5 and draw your eyes at 5.12. Therefore, just as through the one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Look at verse 14. Death reigned from Adam. Right? We have a union in Adam where sin and death is, is reigning. Now the offense of Adam in verse 14, it says, and then verse 14 closes with this clause about who is a type of him who is to come. And Paul explains Jesus as the second Adam. He explains the first Adam typologically. You see, where Adam failed, Jesus does not. The word Adam, the name Adam, Adam, literally means man. The first man, Adam, he, he fails and he brings judgment. He brings death into the creation. This is very clear in chapter 5, uh, 14 through 19. For sake of time, I won't read it. But there he talks about the one act of Adam, the first man. And then he talks about the one act of the second Adam, Jesus, who has come. And through his one act, this life of obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection, through that one sweeping act, he brings righteousness to the unrighteousness. He brings justification of life to men in verse 18. For as through, for as through, look at verse 19, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Paul is showing Christ as the second Adam. Where our father Adam was faithless, the second Adam is faithful. The first Adam sinned and he blamed others. It's, it's his fault, it's his fault, it's his fault. The second Adam was sinless and he didn't blame others, but he took the blame upon himself and died in our place. 
Adam is the victimologist. Christ is the victor. Christ defeated death itself. He rose from the dead in the flesh. And that flesh, the flesh that was in the manger in Bethlehem, that flesh rose from the dead imperishable in resurrection. The human body that He received through Mary, that genetic material was transformed in the resurrection. And in that transformation, you have the first piece of the coming new age. Which brings us to the next point. We move from converted rebels, Christ's resurrection, to creatures restored. The, the resurrection gives us the peace of the new creation. The old creation is going to go away. A new creation is coming. We have a prototype, a piece of the new creation already now. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, we read about the resurrection of Jesus and His ascension and how He is seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. In Ephesians 1.20, we read that. In Ephesians 1.21, it speaks of this age and the age to come. You see, the Bible sees us as in a parenthesis. There's this age and there's the age to come, and we are awaiting the age to come when all things will be made new. Jesus promised in Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. And these words are faithful and true, John tells us. Jesus has plans to make a new creation. Jesus has plans to restore our broken bodies. Jesus has plans to restore our broken lives. Jesus has plans to raise my dead Granny Jones, my dead Grandpa Carol. He, he has plans to raise the dead in Christ and to bring humanity back to paradise lost. This is the ultimate story. Death doesn't win. He raises the dead. And He's proven that He has the power to do so in His own resurrection. This teaching of an old age being gone and a new one coming isn't new to Jesus' teachings or to the apostles. The ancient Jewish community told stories of a redeemed world, a renewed creation, a resurrection of the dead. For example, the prophet Isaiah. We read this at the beginning of our service. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things not to be remembered or to come to mind. We're going to wipe all that away and we're going to bring in something new. The Hebrew Bible anticipates a new age of restoration. Earlier we read in Romans 8, uh, if you could please turn back to Romans 8, in fact, in Romans 8 we read that language of the creation groaning in pain and anxiously awaiting its renewal. If you've, if you've felt pain, you know what it is to groan in pain and agony. You know what it is. It's a, it's a horrible reality. I, we have a, a brother in the room, I won't put him on blast because I didn't ask permission beforehand, but has a debilitating uh, disease in his back. His spine is just collapsing on himself. He's in constant pain all day long. It's a challenge even for him to be in service. That's not the end of the story, though. He's, he's going to run around in the kingdom like a, like a child. I mean, like, that's what we're hoping for. Our loved ones who have passed, we're going to be with them again. We're going to be with them again. We're going to be restored. Um, I, the question I have is whether or not you will all be bald uh, and perfected like me, or if I'll get my hair back, or, you know. Of course, we have all sorts of silly questions. But the day will come when pain is gone. Tears are wiped away. Dysfunction, hurt, all of it is gone. Even death, gone. This, this, is, this is Romans 8. This is why I wanted you to look at it. And, and Paul says, hey, so you know? So you know that's coming? The Spirit of God was sent to you to confirm this. 
The Spirit is a sign of what is to come. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we're new creatures in Christ because by the Spirit we have life. In fact, in that chapter, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of our earthly bodies. We read this at the beginning of the service, groaning and suffering. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul says that he gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So as, as your back hurts, as your brain hurts, as your hands hurt, as you have a, a diagnosis of whatever, as that hurts, you have the Spirit inside you saying, it's okay, this ain't the end. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within our bodies, eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly await for it. You see, the Spirit has been given to stir that hope in us. A hope for what? The next point, coming return. Coming return. Jesus spoke of coming again. Christmas future. If the virgin conception is this wonderful doctrine, isn't just Christmas past, it's Christmas future. The flesh of the child in the manger is, is coming back glorified. He instilled his teachings in his apostles so that they, they knew and they would long for this day. In fact, the early followers of Jesus had a saying. It's Maranatha. Maranatha is a is a is a an Maranaism in the New Testament. It's Armenian. It's it's not Greek. Our New Testament is written in Greek, but you have these Aramaisms in, in the New Testament that don't get translated over because that that's just how you say it. You know, you go, hey, how do you say burrito in Spanish? Uh, burrito. You know, like that's just how you say it. We just that's how you say it. Maranatha. That's how you say it. What what does it mean? It's a compound word, maran atha, and it's a word, it's a phrase that means our Lord is coming. The way to say hey or hello or what's up in, in the ancient church was to say maranatha, and you are just rehearsing and reminding everyone that he is coming again. Jesus is coming back. He will rapture his church. He will bring retribution on sin in the day of the Lord. He will usher in his kingdom. He will bring in a new creation, a new earth, and a new heavens that will be free from the stain of sin. The return of Jesus is going to be an epic historical moment, and unlike his first coming, this cameo will not be missed. I gave you the example of missing the Jonas Brothers and Amy Poehler on Parks and Recs, missing John McCain. Well, this cameo is not going to be missed. The prophet Zechariah foretold in Zechariah 12.10 of the prophecy of the day when the Lord will pour out his spirit of grace and the people will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as the mourns of an only child. In John 19.37, it says, They will look on Him in whom they have pierced. Pulling from Zechariah. In Revelation 1.7, we read this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. In Jesus' teachings of His return in the Olivet Discourse, those are in the parentheses on your outline for you to study, and when He writes about His return, it is very visible. Now, granted, without getting into the eschatological tangent uh, of rapture views and whatever, it is worth noting that the rapture of the church that precedes his, his landing in Jerusalem is something that people will miss. The prophets also predicted, in terms of the tribulation, that there would be false messiahs who would dupe people. 
But when all is said and done, everyone will see the one that either they rejected or received. And Philippians tells us, chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and those who are under the earth. The day is coming where everyone's going to bow. Now, after saying this in Philippians 2.10, Paul goes on to admonish the church on how to live in light of Jesus' work and return, which brings us to the final point on your outline, the Christian response. If I could get you to turn to our a final passage I want us to look at. If you move to the right, find your way to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We know the end of the story, brothers and sisters. We know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know if I'll live to see the rapture. I don't know all the details, but I know what's going to happen. People say, oh, the book of Revelation, it's so hard to understand. No, it's not. I'll give it to you in two words. God wins. That's what the book of Revelation is about. God wins. Sure, there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery, and if you're not familiar with the literature, it can be confusing. Uh, you know, we can explain it, you know, but, but ultimately, God wins. We know the end of the story. Now, the question isn't so much, do we know the end of the story? The question is, are we living like we know the end of the story? More importantly, are we living like we know the one who wrote the story? We read in 1 John chapter 3, let me put this in front of you so that you can keep turning to 2 Peter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, Christmas future, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of Christmas future, fixed on Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. Uh, the author did the Hebrews. We studied Hebrews a lot when we were looking at His priesthood. Hebrews 12.2, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. How should we respond to this message? We, were, we, we need to respond by coming to Jesus in repentance and faith, fixing our eyes on Him. He, he is our resolution for the new year. He, he is everything to us. And He will guide us and propel us in, in a right response. And in the meantime, as we're waiting and we're going, okay, when, when is the new heavens going to come? You know, what's going to happen? Why are we suffering? In today's service, we read from 2 Corinthians, do not lose heart, though the outer man is decaying. We are being renewed day by day. This is momentary light affliction that is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God is using our suffering and hurt and all of this mess as a part of His restoration. He's a God who gets down in, in, in the dirt and gets messy and has come to rescue us. So, how, so, so what should we do then? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3. Draw, draw your eyes at 2 Peter chapter 3. 4, verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed. Peter's storytelling. He's taking you to Genesis, God and creation. Verse 6, through which the world at the time was destroyed. The fall of man, the flood, being flooded with water. Verse 7, by this the word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire. Creation's ruined. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of a godly man. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come in repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What is the Christian response to Christmas future? It's obedience to our Lord. And, and where there is disobedience, it's repentance to our Lord. And let me assure you, there will be plenty of disobedience, which is why you need to hear the gospel over and over. He died for you. He chose to love you. He gives you grace. Come to Him today. We're going to come to the table. We're going to sing a couple of songs to close our service. And as we come to the table, we have before us pictures of Christmas. <coughs> Excuse me. Without, without Christmas, there would be no body. Without a body, there wouldn't be a cracker on the table. Without Christmas, there would be no blood. And there would be no cup on the table. The bread and the cup remind us that the eternal Son became a human for us. The bread and the cup remind us, like a cup, He was poured out for us. Like a cracker in your mouth that breaks, He was broken for you. He did that for you. He chose to love you. And He offers forgiveness to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. He offers forgiveness to those who are in Him and need to be set free. We are prone to wander. There's not a person in this room who can uh, look to the right or the left or behind or in front of you at anyone else. We are prone to wander, and at the foot of the cross, we are all leveled. So, brothers and sisters, let us come today and, and, and pray that He would wash us, that He would cleanse us, that He would have His way with us, that, that, that what we've been studying wouldn't just be a, a, a sermon series for the end of the year or whatever, but it, it, would, it would breathe life. In the, in the womb of a virgin... God brought forth the flesh of the new creation. And the earth itself as a womb will one day, in the hands of God, birth a new earth and a new creation, just as Mary birthed that child. And it will be miraculous. And it will restore all things. And like that child born in the womb of, of that woman, the new earth and the new creation will be holy. And it will be grand. And death will be gone. We are going to suffer in this life until then, but praise be to God for the one who suffered for us. Let us worship Him. Would you bow your heads and hearts? I'm going to pray, and we'll sing and have communion. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your mercy over us. We thank You for this grand story that we've been studying and situating this wondrous doctrine of the virgin conception in it. Uh, Lord, we thank You that we're not just listening to a story, but... By your grace, you have invited us into the story. And as characters in this story, Lord, we come to worship you. Receive these songs of worship. Receive our financial offerings. As we uh, memorialize you in the communion table, Lord, we pray that you would be honored as we come to the table, as we sing, as we cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.